Good afternoon, brethren. We're sure glad to see 242 here in spite of the rain, so that's encouraging. The rain didn't slow you down. We're almost a record attendance here for a normal Sabbath, so that shows you're, you're zealous or else you're confused or something. And we were glad to have you here. Michelle, thank you for the beautiful piece. My granddaughter plays the piano better than I do. I don't understand that. I've been around a lot longer, but she does better. I used to play chopsticks. That's about all I ever played. <laughs> well, brethren, what is the defining Christian doctrine? What do you think would be a defining Christian doctrine, perhaps more than any other? What makes Christ's teaching stand out or cause it to fail where people would have no reason to pay attention to it? What is your hope? After the recent deaths of my wife, Mrs. Bonjour, Mrs. Hall, Mrs. Lowe, many of our other loved ones that we've known, I better not try to mention them all, you might imagine what I've been thinking about. And I hope you've been thinking about it too, but we all should think about it. We take some of the basic doctrines of Christianity for granted, and we do need to preach about them from time to time and understand them more fully. So let's start at the beginning of this particular idea, this particular subject. Mr. Armstrong used to go back to the very beginning. I'd like to go right back to the very beginning of this particular one. Back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, after making the heavens, the earth, the animals, the plants, everything, and all the animals were created according to its kind, cattle, creeping thing, beast of the earth, each according to its kind, then it says, then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image. You could all insert there, after our kind. He'd been making each thing after its kind. He made human beings after the God kind, after our kind, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over everything. So he created man in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and created them in his image to have dominion over everything on the earth. We are his kind. He made us to be like he is someday. He made us in the beginning for that very purpose, and we've had whole sermons on that, of course, as you know, many times. Let's go to the book of Job at this time, the book of Job, and I want to start in chapter 14. Job 14, and beginning in verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? And, of course, this was Job's own comments. And, of course, what God showed later when Job's enemies were persecuting him. But God said, Job said what is right. So God did not criticize what Job said. So this is inspired of God. This is what God would, would say was right. If a man dies... Some of our loved ones have died. Shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. Were made by God, by the hand of God in his image after his kind. We are his potential children. And now in fact we are God's children, only begotten, but not yet born of God. He will have a desire for his children. He will have a desire for his kind 
and he wants us to be like he is in his family. And he will never forget that. Never forget that. Back in verse or chapter 19 of Job, Job cried out after he God was, of course, punishing him for his vanity, and his, his friends were putting him down for the wrong reasons. He said in verse 24, this is Job 19, 24, or 23, Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Job was a great servant of God. And the rest of the Bible shows that. Remember later on, Ezekiel said, If men such as Daniel, Job, and so on were in a place, only they would be saved and not others. I know that my Redeemer lives. He wasn't any doubt about that. And he shall stand at the last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, or as the commentaries point out, I was reading just one this morning in the critic or in the expositor's Bible commentary, this expression can be translated in my flesh or it can be translated, I think it's more correct to say apart from my flesh because we'll see God when we're made spirit. Apart from my flesh, I shall see God. When we are born of God, we will look right in the face of God in God's full glory and we will know God whom I shall see myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Yes, our Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer lives. And we need to fully understand that and realize what all that means. Back in John, I mean in Psalms, I'm sorry, Psalms chapter 16, we find some early indications of the resurrection from the dead. In Psalm 16, David says, I will bless the Lord. This is Psalm 16, verse 7, who's given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord be always before me <clears throat> because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. When we go to sleep in death, it's called a sleep. We rest in hope for you will not leave my soul or my life, as it can be translated, in Sheol, the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for the grave. You will not leave me in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Christ did not even stay in the grave long enough to see corruption. And later on, that's quoted in the New Testament as one of the indications of the resurrection. Then we turn to John chapter 11. Let's go to the New Testament now. And pick up this story, what the Word of God says about this awesome subject. John chapter 11. Here, Martha had come and was terribly upset because her brother Lazarus had died. And she said to Jesus, John 11, verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, brethren, the resurrection is not a major doctrine in the Old Testament. It's not that way. The commentaries often point that out. In fact, they often even leave out to some of the verses I've talked about. But notice what she said. In the faithful Jewish community, people did understand. And, and here Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She knew 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And brethren, when you think about it, this man who had come from God and they didn't know he was God in the flesh, very few people recognized that. Even his own disciples didn't recognize that very much until the very end. And sometimes they, some of them still didn't get it until after the Holy Spirit came. They still denied it and they had a hard time. He rebuked them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart even after his resurrection. I am. Either Jesus Christ was the greatest braggart in human history or he was what he said he was. He was God. He was the creator of the heavens and the earth coming to the human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And that's the truth, and that is going to happen, and all of us have got to base our hope on that and know and know that we know that and not give up if some of our loved ones die. As I've told you before, my dad used to say, I said before and now I repeat behind, <laughs> let's go at it again. I've told you many times over the last several years, as I see our church getting older, some of our brethren, that many of us will die before we get to be 80 or 90 or 100 years old. The vast majority of human beings in our civilized Western society die, unless they die a childbirth or some accident, the vast majority die between age 65 and 85, somewhere in there. Very few live past 85, and not too many die before 65. But most people die within that age range. That's when they die. And we know that that's not some strange thing. If God says you're all going to die at age 70, then all of you would get out your calendar and you would say 0 minus 10, 0 minus 9, 0 minus... Oh, I'm about to fall over. You see what I mean? God doesn't do it that way. He could have done it that way, but based on our health, our heredity, our environment all the pollutions around us, the bad air, the bad water, all the other stuff we have to put up with, the manufactured foods and the way we live ourselves, the degree to which we obey the physical laws of God and all many other factors, we will live a little longer or we will live a little less than 70 years. King David 3,000 years ago died old and full of days at age 70. And I'm already 13 years beyond that. So he would say, I was very old, and here I am, believe it or not. <laughs> so we're blessed if we live past age 70. And if a few of us die three or five years before age 70, that's sad. We hate that. I hate it. As one lady wrote me, and I had hundreds of sympathy cards, and I thank you all for writing those. Many of you did. And you brethren around the world who may be sending this, I'm putting something about it in the Living Church News, but I appreciate it. I've been reading them night after night, including last night. I haven't counted them. I should, but there are undoubtedly around two to 300 of them. And I try to read them and appreciate the people that sent them in. And I thank you. But some ladies have said, now I'm all alone. No one is in the house but me and my memories. And that's sometimes the case. When your mate dies, you're all alone, and no one's there but you and your memories. My mother was all alone for 33 years in her widowhood after my father died. Her dearest friend, Mrs. Ditson, Mrs. Troutman, 
Mrs. Carlson, all the old ladies in my mother's bridge club, they all had their husbands die before they did, and they seemed to want to stay right there where their husband lived for many years or until they died sometimes in that same house. They were all alone. They just got used to it. And many of them did not know about the resurrection. They knew about it, but they probably didn't fully understand it and fully believe in it to the degree that you should and I should. We should fully understand it, fully expect it, and have confidence that it's going to take place. So Jesus was talking to Martha, and she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. So the resurrection was known in the last days. Then we find back in Mark chapter 12, if you turn there with me, Mark chapter 12 in your New Testament. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees were talking to Christ and trying to trap him in various ways. And they said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What, my brethren, was the only major sign that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave? He had lots of miracles. I know that. But what was the major sign he gave proving that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh? He answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights. It's a sign of God. Did the story of Jonah take place? You'd better believe it took place. Here is God in the flesh reciting it as an absolute fact. And not only a fact, but a fact that directly proved he was God. A fact proving that he was the Messiah. He used that part of the Old Testament validating it that that did happen, absolutely happened, he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. The fish may not have been a whale. The Bible never says a whale. That's just a whale of a tail that men have made up. They don't know what kind of fish it was. It is the Creator who made the heavens and the earth, who put the universes out there. They're finding out their whole galaxies they didn't even know about before. Thousands and millions of stars out there. It's awesome that the great God made. Is that God who made all that able to make a special fish? How big is your God? Of course he made that fish. And Jesus Christ said so as one of the very proofs of his Messiahship. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights. Not from Friday night to Sunday morning, like the Protestants and Catholics teach. That's one day and parts of two others. That's not three days and three nights. Jesus said three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that was a very special way he proved that he was the Messiah he was resurrected from the dead precisely at the end of three days and three nights. And we've had Mr. Armstrong's booklet on that, and we need to have our own booklet. I've been threatening to write her. I've asked others to write it. Hasn't happened yet. Maybe we could get it done someday. We need to have our own booklet on the three days and three nights. Now, let's go at this point to, to Matthew 27.
Matthew 27, brethren, and here we find about Christ's death and resurrection. Matthew 27, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 38. If I can find it myself here. It says, Then they crucified Christ, talking about Christ and how they got him and beat him and got him ready, and, and then they killed him and divided his garments, casting lots and so on. And then they showed that he was making fun of him while he lay on the cross. And in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, which the way the Jews counted as the commentaries all agree, which meant noon, high noon, <coughs> until the ninth hour. That would normally be the brightest part of the day, from, from noon until three in the afternoon. There was darkness, a supernatural, unusual darkness that they came over. The creation, when you understand it, was convulsing because the Creator was dying. And God caused it to be that way. And about the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that way sincerely. I know he'd seen that. He inspired that in the Old Testament. But it was something he knew he would feel, and he certainly did feel it, because suddenly, during Christ's life, the Holy Spirit was with him, even the angels came and fed him when he had just got through fasting for 40 days and nights and he sensed God's presence with him. But suddenly, when he took all your sins and my sins on him and he became the sin bearer during that period of time, how many hours it was, I don't know, he suddenly realized God was not with him. He took our sins. He was made sin, as it tells us in Second Corinthians he wasn't made to sin, he didn't sin, but he was made to be reckoned as sin at that point in his life. God cut him off. He was the sin bearer. Why have you forsaken me? He felt that terrible emptiness. God was not helping him. Some of those who stood there said this man is calling for Elijah. They tried to get a sponge. And then verse 49, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And the Clark's Commentary of the Bible and some others have a footnote, which you look it up, and this is absolutely true. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, our entire Council of Elders, then looked into it, and absolutely the received text, the, mass, the majority text of the Bible has this in there. And right at this point, after verse 49, another took a spear, pierced his side, and there came out blood and water. They pierced his bladder, apparently, and water came out and blood came out. That's what killed him. Some of the Protestants have a sentimental idea that Jesus died of a broken heart. He did not die of a broken heart. He died because this young man rammed that spear in his side, and God probably caused that. He was already dying because of the terrible stress of the, of, of the, persec of the crucifixion. He was hanging there, bleeding, suffering, getting ready to have a stroke and die or however people die in various ways of crucifixion. Some of them hung on the cross for four to six days, the commentaries tell us. God at least was merciful to Jesus, and he only hung on the cross six days. I used to say some young Italian. Well, I don't want to pick on the Italians. I love Italian food. That's my favorite ethnic food. 
I love Italian music. Who knows who it was? They had a conscript army. It might have been a young man from Gaul, a young man from Germanica, a young man from Ephraim or Britannia, the island up there. We don't know who it was. Some unknown young man had it put in his mind, probably by God in this case, to make it merciful to Christ. He, Christ was maybe moaning from that horrible pain or something. I could just picture some young soldier saying, Oh, shut up! Wham! And Jesus then screamed, which is kind of normal. He wasn't a sissy. He went, oh, whatever he did. And the blood came spurting out and ran down his side and he died. He who was God died quickly at that time in mercy rather than hanging on the cross several more hours. And so right at that point, he yielded up his spirit. The breath went out and the creator died and the whole creation began to convulse. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. They had a heavy woven veil like a thick Persian rug that men could not pull apart. A heavy, heavy type curtain and it was just ripped right in two. Right then at that point when the Creator, this was to separate man from God and here was God right there. They were killing him. So, so God caused that curtain to be ripped in two and the earth quaked. A local earthquake shook the whole area and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We don't know how many, five or ten or fifty, could have, we don't know. It may have been a few dozen of them. Saints, who were they? They were people that undoubtedly had already believed in Christ. They had a right spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't yet given, but they had a right spirit. They believed in Christ. And as an additional witness of Christ's resurrection, he split their graves. And frankly, everything the Bible indicates, they, the, the graves were split by a miracle, but they didn't get up and go into town undoubted until Christ was resurrected. Because it says the, the graves were split. Uh, these people had fallen asleep. They'd gone to sleep earlier. And coming out of the graves, when did they come out of the graves? After his resurrection. So God left them there. There were two holy days coming up so the Jews weren't all running out there taking care of the graves over that period of time. Thursday was the holy day, Sabbath, and God caused them to lie there. Their graves were open, but the Jews hadn't had their construction crews out there to fix up the graves again. Then they came right up and came in and talked about Christ, an additional witness of the resurrection of the Son of God. God gave a lot of witnesses that this was an absolute fact. It's an amazing thing. All right, now let's go, if you would, to uh, chapter 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, uh, the first day of the week began to dawn. So here was Sunday by now. This, the holy day on Thursday was over. The weekly Sabbath was now over. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. Maybe that was the same earthquake earlier. And then the angel came later and rolled the stone away. It doesn't say it doesn't make any difference. But they saw this young man. An angel always appears as a man, very bright looking, unusual looking. And he says, don't be afraid. Verse 5, I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. So those women saw that. 
He was resurrected, as he said, after three days and three nights. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. So they did that, and then they told some others. And quite a number of others heard about it. Yeah, I'll let you read that. There were eight or ten different appearances where Christ would appear to two at once, one here and there, and then a whole group of them on two occasions as they were eating or gathered together, once over 500 brethren at once, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15. Dozens and even hundreds of people saw him personally after he was resurrected. So this was a very great witness that this really happened. Then, what did the early church preach about primarily? I know we've had one confused bunch of people a few months ago was kind of make fun of us because we talked too much about Christ, they said, and we talked about the resurrection from the dead and things like that. Well, what did they talk about in the early church? The inspired Word of God tells us what they talked about. Turn, if you would, to the book of Acts and let's see what they talked about. We want to go now to Acts, and uh, this is chapter 1, and he says here in Acts 1, verse 1, Luke is writing, who wrote the book of Luke. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. The book of Acts shows how Jesus kept right on. He began to teach, and then he kept right on teaching now through the apostles, you see, in the early church, both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles. To also he was presented himself alive after his suffering. So he appeared to them. He was resurrected. Luke was a sort of a historian, the way he writes his books. And the Bible shows that an educated man, but he obviously believed in the resurrection. So he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs being seen by them. He was seen by hundreds of people during 40 days and speaking to them things concerning the kingdom of God. And so that's what he did. Then you turn over to chapter 1, verse 9. I'd like to read all these verses, of course. I'd keep on reading till midnight, but we can't do that. Mr. League is my favorite enemy. And he has a secret trap door up here that if I talk too long, he pushes the button and they just let me drop right out. So I have to close sort of on time. So that's one reason why I get in such of a hurry because of Mr. League. So you can complain to him if you want me to keep on. Anyway, chapter 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, two men, again two young men, two angels appeared in white apparel. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? Notice, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner. Visibly you will see him as you saw him go to heaven. So then they came back to Jerusalem, of course, rejoicing. And, and then when they were staying together in this upper room, these men were praying to God for guidance. And then it shows that God guided Peter as their leader to say in verse 21, turn down to verse 21, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of what? 
a witness with us of his resurrection. So to be among the twelve apostles, there were other apostles later, Paul and Barnabas were both called apostles, and James the Lord's brother, who didn't see that or wasn't among the twelve, and his brother Jude were both called apostles, and there were probably others as well, certainly indicated, but the original twelve there had to be what? Witnesses who had physically seen Christ after he was resurrected from the dead. They must become a witness with us of what? Of his resurrection. This was the defining event of the church of God. It was the thing they talked about over and over again. I can't begin to read you all the places, but let's get a few of them. Let's go on now to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And let's begin in verse 22. Again, I'd like to read it all. But Peter is preaching. He said in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, many different signs, which he did, God did through him in your midst, as you know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up. They kept repeating that. He is risen. He is risen. God raised up. Having loosed the pains of death, it was impossible to hold them. For David said, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. You will not leave my soul in Hades or the grave, verse 27, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he quoted that same passage here in talking to them. Now you'll notice chapter, uh, well, let's go on here. Uh, in verse 31, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. So here it uses the word again, resurrection, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his soul see corruption. Christ did not stay in the grave long enough for his body to rot or corrupt. Thus, or this Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. They were witnesses of God himself, and they were suddenly willing to go out there and risk their lives. And some of them gave their lives, and they knew this was going to happen. Jesus told them it would if they went out preaching in his name. So you have to think about that. So they went out and did that, witnesses of his resurrection. And, of course, then we go on to chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, Acts 3, verse 13. It says here, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His Son, Jesus, servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, but you denied Him and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead. So Peter is talking again, pushing it right in their face. He told the Jewish leaders this. You've killed him. God raised him up of which we are witnesses. And brethren, I think most of you realize if you think about it, all four Gospels agree on this, that if the Jews could have produced that body, boy, they would love to produce that body. If they could have shown any real proof that he was not resurrected, you better believe they would have come out with it. The Roman authorities were upset about this growing sect and what might happen. They didn't, they'd had other little religious groups rise up and cause riots and troubles. 
They didn't like that. They would love to have shown this was a fake. They couldn't do that. The apostles got right in their face over and over saying, He is risen. We are witnesses. We've seen it. And they kept telling them that. That was their main doctrine for years as it went right on, as you'll see. Now we go to chapter 4, if you would, and chapter 4 of the book of Acts, and beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> now as they spoke to the people, the priests and captives of the temple, they were preaching now right in the temple of God, apparently, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus. What were they preaching? They weren't just preaching about a coming government of God. We preach about that, and we should. I'm not against that. I'm just saying at that time, that was the big thing. That was the key definer of this new religion. The government of God, the coming kingdom on this earth, was 2,000 years later. He didn't cause them to emphasize that as much at that time. They did talk about it, and all the Old Testament prophets talk about it. The book of Revelation talks about it. But the early church talked about the defining thing of their generation that started the church on its way. And so they talked about that again and again, and they taught in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so these Jews laid hands on them and threatened them, and then in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a deed done to this helpless man, how it was done, let it be known to you and all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, <clears throat> whom God raised from the dead. Boy, he pushed that right in their face again and again and again. God raised him from the dead by this man. By this, him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. You religious leaders ought to have been believing and building on this. Now there is, nor is there salvation in any other under heaven given among you by which we must be saved. So the disciples couldn't really do anything about it. I mean, the, the religious leaders, they threatened them and let them go. But they couldn't stop it. Think about it, my brethren. Just a few years earlier, there was no Christian church. It did not exist. In fact, just a few months earlier, there wasn't any Christian church. They had various pagan religions of all kinds, but there was no Christian church. There was the Jews, and they'd gone off into Judaism following various do's and don'ts that had been added by the Sadducees and Pharisees down through the ages, and it was not fully the religion of Moses. It was a perversion of the religion of Moses. And it wasn't the religion of Moses, what they were doing by that time Jesus came along because he, he and, and bawled them out again and again for the traditions of men. Moses' teachings were not traditions of men, by the way. We have another sermon on that. Don't ever get that idea. They were given by God through Moses. But they were right for that time. But the Jews had added all kinds of things. But suddenly, out of nowhere, a lot of people might have thought, because God started this little band of believers, Christ and his 12 disciples, and then several others, and finally a few hundred were following. Suddenly, tens of thousands of human beings across the Roman Empire, later hundreds of thousands, later millions around the world, because more and more of these people began to tell their people at that time, because over 500 brethren saw him alive, 
and each one of them had several relatives and several friends. Each one of them might have taught 20 or 30 other people. Multiply 500 times 30, you get a good number. Then they begin to tell their friends, we've heard our cousin, we've heard our friend, we've heard our grandfather tell us, this happened. This is real. And it electrified that age. And finally, you had thousands joining the church. Finally, tens of thousands. Later, hundreds of thousands, even though most of them later on may have been deceived. Still, that knowledge that they had passed down, this man lived, this man was crucified in public, this man was resurrected from the dead, and no one can deny it. It happened, it happened. He's alive, he's alive. There's an empty cave. They can't disprove it. This man was God. And across the Roman Empire, suddenly, millions of people who had been perverting their way of life, putting little baby girls out in the snow to die, because they didn't want girls, they wanted boys to be their warriors. Suddenly, thousands of them who participated in the barbaric games in the Roman stadium, where they'd turn people over to wild animals and tell them to tear them to pieces, all kinds of rotten, nasty, perverted sex things were going on. Within a few years or a few generations, most of that, not all of it, stopped. Why? Because to the degree, as I've said so many times, to the degree that people read the Bible and understand it, they begin to do better. God did not give them the whole knowledge that He gave us, but they began to have a little knowledge of the truth, and the Holy Spirit convicted them. A man came from God... And that man said, forgive your, 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 your brothers. Don't hate them. Don't kill people. Don't kill little babies. Don't kill little girls. Don't do it. Every human life is precious. That idea, that concept changed the whole society. Within a very few generations as it spread and spread because he was resurrected from the dead. They couldn't argue. They weren't able to fully disprove it. It was a huge thing. And brethren, we need to understand it. We need to appreciate how important that is. Very important. It changed the course of human history. Though so the disciples started out, if you think, unless you think they're all liars, several accounts there in the Gospels at the end of the book of Acts show the disciples at first disbelieved. And in Mark chapter 16, he corrected them for their unbelief, their lack of faith. They did not believe it. But then finally, as they saw him and he appeared to them in person, they had to believe. Finally, even doubting Thomas, Jesus appeared to him. He wasn't there the first time. Jesus came back. He said, stick your hand right in my side. The disciples were with Jesus for years. Jesus was standing right there. God allowed him to appear as, he was, as if he was in the human flesh, appear in that form. And say, stick your hand right in here. Those disciples that slept side by side with Jesus out under the stars at night. They'd walk with him, talk with him, helped him in and out of the big fishing boats. Kidded around with him, maybe arm wrestled with him. They were normal young men. They did, they did some fun things, I'm sure. They knew him. Stick your hand right in my side, Thomas. It's really me. Probably tears came to his eyes. He said, my Lord, my God, you're here. I saw you die, and now you're here. You're alive. You've been resurrected. So you do need to understand this. This really happened. And we must never 
doubt that God came through Jesus Christ and these things happened. Hundreds of thousands of men and women do not have the exultant feeling that these disciples had as they went out. Hundreds of thousands of women, I mean, would never have the exultant faith to go out and give their lives if they saw, thought that something was not certain, if they saw, thought that it was not real. They had every reason to check up on this, to talk to their friends who'd seen it, to have, talk to others, to go around, and they were willing now to die for it, to die for it as thousands did all over the Roman Empire. So he is risen supernaturally. There is a resurrection from the dead. And that is the defining doctrine of the true church of God. Certainly others are important, as important in different ways. The very laws of God, including the Sabbath day, all kinds of other things. But the doctrine of the resurrection, the Jews did not have that. They had the knowledge of the Ten Commandments in the letter but no one had this understanding of the resurrection from the dead. Turn now, let's go, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians, brethren. Let's turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians, and let's begin here in verse 13. <clears throat> Paul wrote, but, it, uh, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We have all lost some very wonderful loved ones. I lost my first wife almost 38 years ago. And now just a few weeks ago, I lost my second wife. And I've lost wonderful friends in the church of God, like Mr. Carl McNair, Mr. John O'Gwen, Mr. D. Barapartian, who until he died had become then my longest time personal friend. And he lived right next to me, he and his wife, who may be here. I haven't seen her. I hope she's here today. They lived right next to us on South Orange Road for about six solid years. I got to know him very well. And as you know, he came right here with us. And he was not cut off in his early days. <laughs> he lived to be 80, I mean 94 years old. And he might have been 96, as he admitted, because he didn't really know because of being hustled away in the Armenian massacre in Turkey when he was a little boy. But he was at least 94 years old, a wonderful long life. We will see them again. They will be here because they will be resurrected. And whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen because they walk with God. I want you to know, not be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others. We do sorrow, but we do not sorrow as others in a hopeless attitude. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. It's a temporary death, a sleep, because the resurrection is absolutely sure. It says back in Romans 4, Verse 17, I think I'm paraphrasing the King James Version. God calls those things which are not as though they were. He told Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. And Abraham could look around and say, well, big deal, where are they? And Abraham could look around ten years later and says, where are they? And been smart aleck. Abraham did not have that smart aleck attitude. God said it 
and Abraham believed it, and Abraham died in faith, not yet having received the promises, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. Many of our brethren have had to die in faith that God would resurrect them, that God would give them a perfect body, not in this life, but in his time. They died in faith, not yet having received the promises, but they are asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, God in his wisdom and perhaps a sort of a little bit of mercy or humor, whatever God looks at it, he says, you folks who had to go to sleep first, I'm going to let you come up a little bit ahead. Now, whether they come up a few minutes earlier or a few hours, it's not going to be too big a difference, but they get to come up first. So Mr. Carl Manair and John O'Gwen and my friend Debar, they're going to beat some of us if we live right up until Christ's coming. They'll get to come up first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. He's going to come back with great power. And the dead in Christ will, they not says might, there's no might about it, they will rise again. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. They will be with Christ wherever he is. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And these words are very, very comforting when you really believe them to the depth of your being. And I hope all of us can learn to do that and have that depth of understanding and that depth of comfort. <clears throat> now let's turn to uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, if you would. The first chapter of, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Colossians at verse 1. God inspired Paul to write here, if then you were raised with Christ, in other words, raised in baptism, out of the baptismal grave, seek those things which are above. Don't have your mind always on the next ball game or the next TV show or the pretty girl down the hall or whoever it is. It's not wrong to do those things, but your main thought should be on the purpose of life, on the kingdom of God. So it says, seek those things which are above. That's what you're primarily seeking for. These other things along the way, it's all right to have a wife or a husband. It's good in most cases. It's all right to have a job and make money. It's good in most cases. It's okay to be interested in sports up to a degree. <laughs> Don't focus on it too much. How many dollars should you spend or how many thousands of hours should you spend watching too much as a young man crash into each other or, or uh, some other sport where they're banging on each other's bodies and end up with injured bodies because of it? So seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting there because he was resurrected from the dead. Set your mind, what you're really thinking most deeply about, on things above. Christ is planning the coming government. What will be your job in that government? Will you be over five cities or ten cities? Or will you be a, a sort of a leader, head of a department at headquarters in the New Jerusalem eventually? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died. And if we've given our lives to God and really meant it when we were baptized, we meant to bury the old self. 
and to symbolically die. The old self is supposed to be dead, not the main force in our life anymore. Christ is to be our main force. He's to live His life in us through the Holy Spirit. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life. That's a beautiful expression when you understand it. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Brethren, we're going to have glory beyond what we can ever imagine. Turn back to 1 John, if you would, just before the book of Revelation. 1 John, and let's turn, if you would, here to chapter 3. 1 John 3, the Apostle John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now... And we all need to understand that and appreciate it. Right now, we are children of God. I know we don't often think of ourselves that way, but we should. We should walk that way to honor our Father. A little bit of His very seed, a little bit of His very nature, a little bit of His very Holy Spirit ought to be in us, guiding us, leading us, motivating us. Now, we're the children of God. We're only begotten. We'll be fully born at the resurrection. But now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed at the second coming of Christ, at the resurrection from the dead, we shall be like Him. His voice is like the sound of many waters. It's like thunder, the thunder of God rolling across the plains. His face shines like the sun in full strength. He is God. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him right as He is. And everyone, and that means you and me, everyone who has this hope, if we have this hope, real definite hope and faith in the resurrection, purifies Himself just as He is pure. Why should we want to be good? Why should we want to live a right, good, clean, pure life? Just because God is an old grandfather figure? No. Because He is the great God of the universe, He really does know what's best, and He is going to give us eternal life and glory and power and majesty and immortality and joy inexpressible if we truly walked with Him, if Christ is our life, if we let Christ live His life in us and we put our hand in Christ's hands and we get up every morning and pray to God on our knees. We study the, this book, the Bible, regularly and drinking of it as the very Word of God, as the revelation from God to man. We feed on it, read it, study it, try to think like that, have Christ's thoughts in our minds. If we pray to God regularly, study regularly, meditate on what we've thought about it, how, what does this really mean for me? And then if we fast, using that tool to bring us down, to humble us, and bring us closer to God. And then the fifth thing, if we consciously exercise God's Spirit to go that direction, to walk with God, to exercise Christ's Spirit, that Christ lives His life in us, then we will have our hand in God's hand. We will be walking with God. And in that relationship, <clears throat> in that relationship, we will go right on over into a different dimension of existence. And we will be born of God 
born by a resurrection from the dead, we will become God. Our face will shine. We will have a spirit body that never gets sick, never gets tired, never feels bad. And we will be composed of love. We won't have to fight the attitude of wanting to hate others or compete with them or lust after them or whatever. We won't have it. We'll have the very nature of God. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we will live together in a kingdom based on love and joy and peace and righteousness and fairness and tremendous prosperity and plentiful way of life, which will give us an exalted joy beyond anything that we have ever experienced in this life because we will be full sons of the great God who made the heavens and the earth. All of this happening by the resurrection from the dead. That's our hope, and that had better be our goal. That would be better what we really think about going for with all our heart, all our mind, all our being. So we want to really appreciate that. Let's turn now, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, brethren. And this, as most of you know, is called the resurrection chapter. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Now, some people say the gospel is just about the coming government of God. It's got to be just talking about the coming government of God and Christ setting up a government and crushing the nations and ruling all nations with a rod of iron. Is that true? Here's a whole chapter about the gospel. What does Paul say about the gospel? I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you receive and in which you stand, by which you're saved if you hold fast the word which has been preached to you unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, as Christ was prophesied to die as the Lamb of God, the final Passover Lamb, the real Passover Lamb, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day, or as it says a number of places, after three days, exactly at the end of the third day, and according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by, at least, uh, seen by Cephas, so He was seen first of all by Peter, and then by the Twelve, seen by all twelve of the Apostles, after that, of course, other appearances we know are recorded in the Gospels, but Paul jumps ahead at this point to the biggest number. After that, he was seen by over, get this, doesn't say how many over, over 500 brethren at once. So quite a crowd saw Christ at, at, after his resurrection, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Well, my brethren, think about all that at this point. Think about that. As I said before, the Jews would love to produce that body, but they could not because there was no body there. He was gone. They would love to found something in that empty cave, that empty tomb, but there was no body there. And they had all kinds of things that they would like to have done and the Romans would love to have done the same thing, but they couldn't. And then, of course, you have these hundreds of thousands, finally, millions. And now, even though they don't fully understand, about two billion would the be human beings professedly to be followers of Christ. All over this earth, two billion human beings 
has become the, mo the greatest and most prolific, most progressive religion, even though it's not fully understood or practiced, because of this one man who came from God, this one man who was resurrected from the dead. Did his individual miracles convert everybody? No, they killed him at the end of that time. Did his preaching convert everybody? No, they killed him. Once he was resurrected, they had no way to argue with that, if you follow me. His enemies couldn't disprove it. His friends couldn't disprove it. And hundreds went out and gave their lives just rejoicing in an exultant, joyous thing. He is risen. He is risen. And no one can say, well, he's not. They say, yes, I saw him. My first cousin, my father, my grandfather, my uncle that I trust saw him. He is risen. No way to argue. So we want to really understand the depth of that meaning and how much that spread out. As over 500 brethren saw him at one time, and many of them, Paul said, were still alive. They could have checked up on it. They could have talked to some of these people, say, did this really happen? They were still there. Paul points that out. After that, he was seen by James, that is, by James the Lord's brother, because the original James would have been one among the twelve, then by all the apostles, plural, then last of all, he was seen by me. He appeared to Paul, it tells us in Galatians, the chapter, chapter 1, directly to Paul, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. <clears throat> but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly. Paul felt he'd done so wrong that he pushed himself and drove himself. He may have had that kind of intense personality anyway, but he went all out to make up for whatever it was and worked hard to get the gospel all over the Roman Empire, being beaten up, stoned and left for dead, stripes all across his body, <clears throat> spent most of the last five years of his life in jail, so on. <clears throat> so I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, he says, but Christ or the grace of God in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection? Even some of these Corinthians who were very superstitious and had come from pagan backgrounds, had been involved in fornication, <laughs> a lot of them. It was part of the temple worship of Diana. Corinth was the second greatest center of Diana worship in the whole Roman Empire. <clears throat> but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. Yes, and we are found to be face false witnesses of God. Our whole ministry is for nothing unless Christ was resurrected from the dead. Think about that. He's pushing it at him. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Christ's resurrection, Paul keeps pointing out, indicates our resurrection. Christ's resurrection and Christ's promise of being a re of resurrection shows we are going to be resurrected just as surely as Christ was resurrected. And as his tomb was empty, so our tomb will be empty. Think about that, brethren. 
let it encourage you, encourage you, and think about those who, whom we loved who are dead. They're not going to stay there. They're just not going to stay there. And if they're dead in Christ and believed in Christ, you say they weren't perfect. Nobody's been perfect. But if they fully believed and had a depth of belief and were faithful, they will be there. And the ones I've named and many others I'm sure will be there. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's in vain. You are still in your sins. Why would you be in your sins? You, you say, well, you know, the Protestants often say, well, the fact Christ paid for your sins. Well, yes, that's part of it. But you would go right back into your sins if he were not resurrected because if he were not resurrected, he said the Holy Spirit would not be given. And if the Holy Spirit were not given, we would go right back and sin again and come under the penalty of sin. He had to be resurrected to be our living high priest, our merciful high priest, our living head, our coming king. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Our main hope is taken right away. Our main hope, Paul said, is to look forward to the next life, to look forward to the resurrection from the dead. But now Christ is risen. They can't disprove it and has become the first fruits. He's the first one ahead of us of those who've fallen asleep for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die. If I die in a few years at 84, 86, or 90 or something, that's not strange. Everybody dies. I know that. I hope you figured that out. No one needs to give up on that score. We all die in Adam. We're made of dust like Adam was. And that's the normal progression of, of human life. Yet in Christ we shall all be made it didn't say we'll live on forever in this flesh, but we'll be made alive. How are we made alive? By a resurrection from the dead. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So these people I've named and others are going to be there. They will be there with us. And I hope all of you will want to have renewed faith and zeal to be there and greet those people and love them and hug them again to be there and greet them at the resurrection. So they will be there. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign, Christ must reign over this earth till he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death seems to be a temporary friend as some writers have put it, when people are suffering of cancer, something horrible, and they're in terrible agony. But in the end, I know you know that, and I know that having lost a wife, death is an enemy. It leaves you shaken. It leaves you hurting for a while. It's an enemy. It's going to be destroyed. Why? Because Christ is alive. That's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's going to resurrect everybody at the last trump who's put his faith in him. For he who has put all things under his feet, but when he has says all things, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things under him. Now when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Finally, God will be in every being that still lives, and everything will be the kingdom of God. Every 
person, personality, who still exists, will be a member of the family of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, made to the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit perfectly then in the family of God. Paul sort of concludes this. I won't read all these things. I'd like to, but let's go to verse 50. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. No, we're not in the kingdom of God fully yet. For uh, Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We're corrupt. We still make mistakes. The church is not the kingdom. We're not fully in the kingdom. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Some few will live right up to Christ's coming. But we shall all, all of us, be changed. All of us, us as those who walk with God. We all understand that. Who don't give up. Who never turn aside. Who never fall away. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. God has a victory ahead for all of us and for our brethren who are dead. O death, where is your staying? O Hades, where hell, hell the grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. That's the poison stinger that brings us under sin, under the devil's power, under the penalty of death. But the strength of sin is the law. God defines what it is. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Don't ever give up and quit. Be steadfast. Know this hope is real. Know no one can deny, if they have any brains, that Christ is alive, that Christ was resurrected from the dead. There was an empty tomb. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He will give us life as well if we serve Him. So we have to know that. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So you want to really know and know that you know that and have that confidence. And brethren, as we think about our loved ones, I think God would want us to have a great joy and in a right sense a certain sense of humor. I know that out in California, my wife Margie is lying there and God allowed it at least, maybe he guided it, she's lying at the feet of her house mother, Mrs. Annie Mann, who was well known and loved by all the students, the house mother of Mayfair, when the boys lived on the third floor, the girls lived on the first floor, and Mrs. Mann yelled at the boys if they tried to go down where the girls were. She kept us all in line, and she was really strict. One time she fainted down the basement when I was, I think, a senior and still young enough to be strong and I wouldn't normally do that, but I picked her up and carried her upstairs. <laughs> and oh my! You know, anyway, I got to help any man in that case, and we all loved her. But she will be there in that resurrection, and my wife is lying at her very feet, and Mrs. Apartian's son Philip is lying right there next door, and a couple furlongs, or let's say 50 or 100 yards away. 
Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong are lying there and all kinds of faithful men and women of God are lying out there in that place. And they used to kind of kid about it in the right way. When that last trumpet sounds, there's going to be a traffic jam there. All these people are going to come up. A traffic jam. Oh, it come up at once. A whole bunch of God's people from the Mountain View Cemetery in Pasadena. Mr. Ames has told me he thinks, I don't know if he still thinks that, if it's kept on going, but it might be as many people at Big Sandy because so many old people moved to the elderly group they had at Big Sandy and that little cemetery. Many of our loved ones are there too. And now we have over here in uh, the uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery, we have Mr. Debar Parting lying there and Mrs. Bonjour and uh, others that we know and love are buried nearby. And I arranged it where my wife and I, and she's already there, are just a few yards away. We, we used to live for six years next to Mr. and Mrs. Apartian. Well, I guess we were living about uh, 16 yards from them or something like that. Now we're just going to be 16 feet from them <laughs> in the cemetery. So when we come up, well, I'm going to say, D-Bar, what's up? <laughs> what you been doing? <laughs> and... Uh, I said, have you been up to some mischief? And he'll probably say, well, Rod, you're always trying to persecute me or something, so we'll kid each other as we used to do. He will be there, and we will see each other. And I'll say, hi, Margie, I've been missing you. Hi, Cheryl, I've been missing you. Hi, Mr. Armstrong, it's sure good to see you again. And all the other people we've known and loved, they'll be there. And we'll have a long time to talk things over to wonder what happened after we went to sleep and the lessons we've learned in our previous life and now we'll be made spirit and we won't feel bad about anything. We'll go on as members of the same family, the family of God, born of God by a resurrection from the dead. Let's rejoice in that, my brethren. Let's look forward to Christ's coming. Let's look forward to the last trumpet and let's give ourselves to God. And as he says here, let's do our part in the work of God to reach out to the whole world to the full extent that we can so we can help others have that opportunity. So be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We've been part of the greatest work in modern times. Very grateful for that. The greatest work at the very end time, not greater than Mr. Armstrong's work, but a continuation of it. And we can be very grateful for that. And thank God we have this opportunity. So let's look forward in a special way to the resurrection from the dead.